Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded on August 23rd, 2017 at 11am GMT in the days after the terrorist attack in Barcelona. So if there have been any significant events which took place in the time after recording, we were obviously unable to cover them. If you want to find out more about upcoming podcasts or anything else we do at the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. There you can find out information about our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, our Terrorism and Extremism book series with IB Taurus, and so much more. Also, for the most up-to-date information, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at T-E-R-C-U-E-L, and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. Now, it's time for today's interview. It's my great pleasure and honour to welcome Professor Max Taylor onto today's pod. Max, a forensic and legal psychologist, is a visiting professor at the Department of Security and Crime Sciences at University College London, and is the co-editor of Terrorism and Political Violence. Prior to his move to UCL, he was the director of the Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of St Andrews, before which he was the head of the Department of Applied Psychology at University College Cork. For most of our listeners, Max would be most widely known as a prolific and thought-provoking specialist on the psychology of terrorism. However, his background also includes groundbreaking research on capacity building for disadvantaged children living in conflict zones and the combating of paedophile information networks in Europe. Within the realm of terrorism studies, Max has published on a wide range of topics from evolutionary psychology to affordance, Irish Irish republicanism to Islamic fundamentalism. He's also the author of some of the most influential books on the psychology of terrorism. Notably amongst them are The Terrorist, Terrorist Lives and The Fanatics. Max, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the pod. John, it's a pleasure to talk to you. So, Max, the way I've started each of these interviews and the way I'm going to continue starting is just to ask, how did you get into this area of research? What brought you to um, to research these topics? Um, a set of accidents, no. I think, is probably the, the honest answer. Um, an interest in doing things with psychology, I suppose, that's the starting point for it all. And that comes from uh, a very thorough grounding in my undergraduate days in B.F. Skinner. Uh, and the reason, in fact, I chose be a, a Science and Human Behaviour as a, uh, an influential book is because I think what Skinner did was to point the way to application for experimental psychology. Uh, my background was in, uh, I hope still is in a way, in experimental psychology and I think what Skinner did was open the door to a more creative way of thinking about how psychology might be used. That always interested me. I was always interested in using psychology and then quite honestly through a series of of, of, of events that were entirely accidental I found myself Uh, becoming involved in some work in Northern Ireland uh, with the then RUC, and it continued from there on. So uh, the the quick answer to your question, how did you get into this, is a total accident. And so how did you see the work of Skinner uh, applying to to that work in Northern Ireland? What was it uh, that this added to your understanding of why people would be coming involved in political violence? 
I, I don't think, well, Skinner, I think underread and misrepresented author because one of the things that he did do um, was he thought very generally and he wrote about things in very general ways and he used psychology to talk about uh, big issues as well as little issues. Uh, psychology tends to be, I think, correctly criticised for being over-focused on minutiae of things and I think what Skinner did was he, he opened the door to this broader way of thinking. I don't know that there was anything particular about, uh, I don't think there's anything about operant conditioning, for example, that you could say there was some kind of aha experience and, and that seemed to work in thinking about terrorism. I don't think it was like that at all. I think it's a way of thinking about things that's important. Um, I'd like to think that what I've done has been empirically based or rationally based, at least rather than ideologically based. So. I suppose that's that's the answer to your question. Skinner gave you a way of thinking about things that made you ask questions that look for evidence, uh, and I think that's what led that. I'd like to think that that was part of the way that I became involved in terrorism work through thinking about what sort of evidential issues there were and how could you explore things. It's 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 widely important and it can be seen across your work and and it's actually it does. Uh, form a dominant part of one of the one of your own pieces, which we'll be discussing uh, later, where you look at rational choice and behavior analysis and political violence. But going back to the oris original source material, science and human behavior, would this section where Skinner discussed controlling agencies, for example, government, religion, education, was that obviously you said it wasn't they this there were no aha moments here, but did that give do you feel that that gives a, a theoretical framework on which we can develop uh, even more? Yes, I do. I, I think I think what he, what he did was he would the, perhaps times are different now. Uh, you need to think, you know, this is about 50, 60 years, well, 50 years ago, mm -hmm. 40 years ago. Um, and people had different ways of thinking about things then. And I think academic life was different then. What Skinner seemed to do was to be a refreshing voice, a different voice, a voice that was very challenging, um, and a voice that talked about those big issues, so the nature of government. It talked about big things. Another book um, that, that, that could have been equally referred to was Beyond Freedom and Dignity, where he talks about big issues. Now, whether or not you agree with the way that he works them out is, in a way, less important than the fact that you can do it, and that you can do it from a psychological base, and you can do it from a way of thinking about things that draws on evidence. And I, th I think, you know, it's returning to the same point again. It's, it's the importance of, of thinking evidentially about big things as well as little things. And the one thing I think psychology does, not always very effectively, but it does teach you, have a view about methodology and about how you ask questions. And again, I think Skinner helps us to do that. And again, repeating myself here, uh, he led us to do that about big issues. And I, I've always felt psychology needed to do that. It needed to get outside the laboratory. It needed to get outside of the clinical context as well, where there's a sort of narrow set of issues. And it needs to start addressing big things like government and the nature of the world and how we think about the universe and so on. 
And I suppose this this fits well within the within the literature that you've contributed to, Andrew Silk, uh, Alex Smith, and others have contributed to, where looking at the study of terrorism and saying that, well, it there has been so much written with so little evidence as well. It it goes contradictory to uh, the example Skinner was setting, um, and I suppose, yeah. Yeah. How do you no, feel? I think you're right. I, I, well, I think one of the difficulties about contemporary uh, terrorism work is that it is um, still, and I think Sageman's point uh, in this respect is quite correct, it is still not evi- sufficiently evidentially focused. It, it's much more about the world as we would like to see it than the world as it turns out to be. Uh, and. Part of that, I think, uh, you may want to return to this later on, but part of that, I think, is um, an over-reliance on discipline approaches rather than problem approaches. Uh, And I think that's shaped us to um, almost look at at ideology as mattering more than evidence. Sounds an odd thing to say, isn't it, in a world that's in the terrorism world that's full of ideology, but I think we're inflict, we have ideology inflicted on us as well. Um, and I don't, I think what the lesson I would take from Skinner, others may take different ones, the lesson I would take would be that we need to look at these big issues with an open mind and we need to look at evidence. Uh, and that furthermore, you can do that. It isn't that you, it, it might be difficult, but you can do that. I think that's a hugely important lesson to take. And it's one that's actually been a theme across uh, a number of interviews that we've done for this podcast series so far. And I'm sure it's one, as, as you said, we'll deal with this later when we, we come to discuss, discussing at the end of the podcast the state of terrorism research and where it can go from here. The next piece yeah. that you picked uh, was Oris Peter's work, The Concept of Motivation. Um, now, you talk about how... Um, Skinner uh, looking at it from a behavioral analysis point of view and and talking about the importance of evidence, etc. What was it that, that Peter's work, another classic work, uh, gave you and how did that influence your research? I think Peter's is enormously important, uh, well, in lots of different ways, but certainly for thinking about terrorism research. An awful lot of the issues that, that could concern us although we don't use the word, are often about terrorist motivations, because we ask why, and all the stuff on radicalization and so on, um, has built into it very often assumptions about why. So we, we do, we, I don't think, I can't think of a book called Terrorist Motivations, John. Do you know one? I can't think of I can't think of one either. Such a, but but nonetheless, that's a sort of that's a sort of recurring background theme in a lot of the work that people who are engaged with looking at terrorism are really concerned with. They're, they're concerned with these why questions, and I think Peters was very useful in alerting us to the complexity of asking why questions. Um, what Peters does is, uh, and, he, and it's, it's written in a, it's not written in a very contemporary way. It, it belongs to a time, in you know, a particular kind of time. 
and Peters belongs to a particular kind of philosophical tradition as well, but it's not doesn't make the easiest of readings these days. But what Peters does is he 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 asks a very simple question uh, around the notion of why did somebody do something, and he answers that question in a number of different ways. And what I think is important about that is that the way that he answers the question why very often depends on the context in which you're asking it. And you can generate a whole array of different answers to why questions, depending on how you want to frame it. And sometimes they're contradictory, but generally speaking, they're all true. And I think that's quite, quite, a, quite an important lesson to, to hold on to. It's an important, it really is an important lesson to hold on to. And you can see in Peter's work uh, the critical analysis of, of Freud's work, of drive theories, of hedonism, and coming to this explanation that, as you said, there is no unitary theory to explain motivation. Um, no, they're all, they're all, in one sense, they're all true. Mm. Uh, and you could have an explanation that would contradict another one. And it's equally true because, it, because of course, um, people are complicated, and uh, environments and the individuals and the world that we live in and everything are, is is a very complex arena. And you, you take slices, you look at it in slices, and there are different kind of slices you take. Each slice gives you a different perspective on it. Um, some are more significant than others, which is different from being true. But um, it strikes me that very often an array of accounts are equally valid, but they're not all, of course, equally significant. And the challenge in, in as it were, following forward with Peter's ideas is working out what, what's significant, what, what amongst these accounts matters and what, what's just intellectually satisfying. I think one of the problems about terrorism research is that it's got hung up very much on what's intellectually or ideologically or, or conceptually satisfying and it's forgot what works. No, that, I think that's, quite, that's a kind of important omission. Yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is. And it's, it's, it's again, yeah, it's, it's linking up to, to what you're talking about with Skinner, like, it's following that evidence and no and, and looking at it from a number of different perspectives. So I can see um, what you're what we can, we can take from Peter's work on the concept of motivation, about looking at things from a variety of points of view. And, and, that, that being applied to your work is terrorism a group phenomenon and the conclusions you come to at the end that we it there's no uh, one truth we can look at there are some that are more significant than others and in different situations we have to take different things things on board um, but before we can focus on that let's look at the final uh, classic piece that you've picked has been influential in your research and that's Cornish and Clark's The Reasoning Criminal and it this deals with rational choice theory which we see is dominant throughout uh, a, a critical analysis of this is dominant throughout your research so could you just for the listeners give an explanation about uh, this edited volume The Reasoning Criminal and why it was so influential and why it continues to be so influential for you it seems to me that one of the significant insights that Cornish and Clark made was this distinction between criminality, 
been involved in a criminal lifestyle or whatever, and criminal offending, the commission of a particular offence. And I think what they pointed to was the factors that influence criminality are not necessarily the same as those that influence the commission of a particular offence. So if you if you, you might stop someone from residential burglary was the kind of exemplar, exemplar that was used then, you might stop someone from committing a residential burglary, you might protect your house or the house of your neighbours, um, and the individual may not offend in that way again, or he may go off and do something else, or whatever it is, but you're not necessarily affecting criminality. He remains a criminal, he remains engaged in the criminal lifestyle, or whatever it else it is. You are focusing on a particular piece of behaviour and saying, how do I change that, by looking at the situational context very Skinnerian kind of thing, it seems to me, which is the point that I wanted to argue in that, that earlier paper. Um, but I, I think that distinction is very important in thinking about terrorism as well. That terrorist, terrorist behavior, what terrorists do, is not the same as the ideological context from which they might draw their behaviors. Uh, and it may be that that distinction works quite well in terrorism as well. And I, I don't know whether that's the case. I think it does. But I mean, it, it's one of these things that really needs to be properly looked at and empirically explored. Yeah, and this, I, I, I'm in agreement with you. I feel that that it that it does work as well. Um, and you do, as you said, you you felt that this was a very Skinnerian concept, and this is something that you deal with in your chapter, Rational Choice, Behaviour Analysis and Political Violence, which was in the Clark and Felsen book from 1992. Um, for our listeners, um, and for all listeners, any of these uh, pieces which are discussed uh, on today's podcast, there are links up on our website where you can you can down you can read them for uh, read them in depth or get access to find out how you can get access to them. And uh, for our listeners who haven't yet uh, read your your piece, rational choice, behavior analysis, and political violence, what was your thinking behind this, um, and what do you feel uh, it was adding to our understanding of of terrorism and terrorist involvement? Well, it wasn't so much written from a, a terrorist perspective. It's, it, but first of all, it was about political violence, mm -hmm. which, of course, is not necessarily the same as terrorism. Uh, and it was also, I was asked to write that in a, from a criminological context, um, not from a terrorism context. And um, what, what I wanted to do in that, if I, and it was done a long time ago, but if I can cast my mind back, as it were, to, to, to when it, to the origins of it. I wanted to try and shape ideas about rational choice within a Skinnerian context. And that, that's, that was my agenda in doing it. And political violence, because I was interested in that at the time, was, was the way in which I tried to show how that could work out or not. Um, and I, I, I don't know whether it was successful or not, but I, I know I learned a lot from it. Um, what it also did, another interesting thing, again, I thought was of value, certainly for me anyway, was it made me look at where rational choice thinking comes from. And from 
I remember reading the some of the economic economics material that that you know lays behind ideas about rational choice, not reason spending, but the economic ideas about rational choice. And one of the things which really struck me, which uh, never seems to have really surfaced in a way I would have expected to, is that when the early economists were talking about rational choice, they were talking always about bounded rationality. Rationality that is rooted in the individual and the individual's construction of the world. And that seems to me, again, to be rather an important element in it. That it's the rationality derives from the individual's construction of the world, not my construction of his world, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important point. And it's one which I think terrorism researchers tend not to do very well, or not even at all. Yeah, and there is a presumption sometimes among terrorism researchers that, well, if the the group has this justification for their existence, therefore that justification is applied to individual acts as well, and the, and the what the group is aiming to gain is therefore tied to the in what the individual is looking to gain, and you do discuss this uh, within the article the difference between individual and collective gains and how that is important to differentiate between. Um, and as you said, this isn't always acknowledged within terrorism research. Why do you feel that that is so important? I know it, some of it might be going over things we've talked about already. But. Well, I think it's. I think life is complicated. People are complex. Um, and I, I, the more I, the more I think about this, uh, the more it seems to me that we're not dealing with states. We're dealing with processes, and the pro processes change. And someone starts off somewhere, you know, influenced by whatever it is, doing whatever it is for whatever reasons, and they end up somewhere else. Sometimes for the same kind of reasons, but generally speaking, because life has changed as they've gone along. And that's a very, if you think about it, that's a very Skinnerian notion, the idea that um, behavior is related to its consequences, that the idea that behavior is related to the environment in which you've found yourself and that you change as a result of that environment and then of course that environment changes as a result of your behavior so you're dealing not with a, a set of states but with the process um, if you like the, our earlier conversation about motivation links into this as well doesn't it um, one reason why we might have multiple kinds of explanations of motivation is because we, we are dealing with processes quite complex processes in humans um, and that there are different ways of conceptualizing these processes but nonetheless we're not dealing with states and I think one of the difficulties about an awful lot of terrorism research is that we, we make reference to things as if they were states. Radicalization will be one example. People, you would know John because of your background in Northern Ireland and context of Irish terrorism 20 years ago, if you'd made reference to some provisional member as being radicalized, they A, would have laughed at you. They certainly wouldn't have known what you were talking about. Um, yet now, we talk as if radicalization is almost an infection that you catch. 
uh, by, and it's a very strange infection because instead of contact with somebody, you sometimes catch it by reading. And there's something very odd about that kind of thinking, do you not think? I, I, I think it's very odd about it. It's the, the idea that there are somehow or other states of being that we lapse into, and that this is what causes terrorism. I, I think that's not a good idea. I don't think it's a very helpful way of thinking about things. It's also wrong. I completely agree with you. And and to to circle back to the theme that uh, that we've been that has been dominant throughout this discussion, much of what's written in the radicalization literature is not empirically based at all. It's uh, it's people's. Uh, uh, idea that well this is the way it is and not basing it on any empirical on any empirical findings you talked about uh, involvement in terrorism as a process rather than a state and this links up to uh, your work your piece with john horgan a conceptual framework for addressing a psychological process in the development of the terrorist now what does it mean when you talk about viewing uh, involvement in terrorism as a process? I, one of the diagrams, we, we, there were two diagrams in that piece. I, I don't think neither John nor I have properly developed that. I felt for a long time that, that some of the ideas in there, um, we should have, we, I, John and I, or John alone or me alone, should have done more on this because I think there were two really interesting diagrams in that piece which if you like illustrate a notion of process one was a, a kind of linear um thing which talked about steps stages towards being a terrorist and it was done in a linear fashion and and it started off by sort of having at one end uh, selling material or talking about it or whatever and you gradually became more and more involved in it. So the, the, the bottom line was innocuous things which then led you more and more and more at some point into at some point transiting into an illegality as you became involved in managing weapons or doing whatever. Now the, 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 the ideas behind that were, were very clearly based on the provost structure of how they they organize themselves and it's clearly drawn from that although i think it has much wider applicability than that what what has always struck me about that linear diagram linear diagram is that it was wrong it's clearly wrong because people don't progress in a linear fashion uh, they move in little leaps and bounds furthermore they can be in two places at the same time so you can be involved in managing weapons or storing weapons and you can also be involved in proselytizing or raising money or whatever it is uh, they're not individual states they are states that people might they're things that people rules perhaps might be a better way of putting it rules that people might occupy uh, and there is clearly at one level a sense of progression because when you start off and you express an interest in being engaged in terrorism certainly if you're part of any kind of group that group is going to want to find out whether it can trust you. So you start off learning and you become more experienced as you go along. So there is clearly a sense of progression in it. But it's not a linear progression because you can be several things at the same time. The second diagram in that paper, which I think made that point more clearly, was a, a set of circles uh, which talked about 
the way that people move between things. And it's the same idea, the same notion that you're, you're moving, you're changing as you go along. Um, Martin McGuinness is a good example of that, isn't he? Somebody who started off life uh, in Derry, very much involved in uh, Irish politics, very much involved in early days of terrorist violence in Derry and then in Northern Ireland and transits into a political arena. A, a man, in my view, with blood on his hands, who no doubt did all sorts of other things as well. It doesn't make sense to characterize people like that as if they were suffering from states. It changes. I mean, people's engagement with what they do changes over time. And because of that, the environment in which they work changes. McGuinness ended his life operating at a very high level, you know, working with all sorts of people, terribly grand, terribly important people. He started off his life in a very different way. They connect together by a process. They don't connect together by states. Does that help, John? That that does. And I think the, the example of McGuinness is, is a really worthwhile one to follow because if you look at his passing, you could see people struggling on on how to refer to him in obituaries and so on because there was that there, there was that stage uh, of his process of involvement where he clearly had blood on his hands and he was clearly involved in the planning and execution of some horrific acts of terrorism and then towards the end of his life his involvement in political and uh, peaceful political solutions as well is that you can't just focus on one you it's not just yeah, you can be several things at the same time. I think I think that part of the difficulty we have in thinking about terrorism is is because we're kind of wrapped up with this idea of states, and the language that we use, like radicalization, encourages us to think in terms of it's almost a medical model, isn't it? You have a disease that you're suffering from, uh, but you can, it, 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 in reality, you occupy several roles, some of which might be contradictory at the same time. And that's one of the challenges of working out and understanding terrorism is working through this idea of process of change and how when you change the environment in which you're in also changes. So there's a sort of quite complex set of things going on there. It doesn't mean that you can't understand it, and it doesn't mean that you can't simplify it either. I think you always have to have regard, however, to the complexity of it and recognize that there are probably other valid ways of thinking about the same thing. Then it becomes a matter of you know, thinking through, well, what do I want to achieve, and which of these are most useful? And I, I don't think we're terribly good at that. Yeah, it's uh, I I would I would encourage all of our listeners to as as you said, Max, to go to uh, that the the circular diagram that you that you and John put together. I think it's it gives a clear depi- depiction of what involvement can look like. You've got the transition. Uh, you've got a pictorial example of illegal activity where there's someone who is involved in violence, logistic and leadership versus someone who's involved in legal activity, involved in leadership, community activity and political yeah. activity. And it, to understand that there are different, that it isn't a state, that there are different processes and that there are different roles, as you said, as well. It's, uh, I think it's a, a vitally no. important point. Um, we do, we do, we do recognise this, John, because we struggle like mad 
in trying to work out ideas about criminality and terrorism. Um, so we struggle with uh, drawing, the, if, if you like, you know, there's, there's a line got to be drawn when you say this is illegal. We live in a world that is governed happily by laws. Uh, so so there, there has to be a, some kind of clear definition of what we mean by an illegal act. And we then struggle because terrorism, in a way, the terrorist or the sophisticated terrorist plays with the idea uh, of operating on the margins. I mean, I think someone like McGuinness is a very good example of that, isn't he? There was a point when he was very clearly legal. There was a point when he clearly was legal. And I think there's probably a point when he was... Uh, towards the end of his life as well, um, quite clearly uh, navigating that boundary rather carefully. And, he, and, he, need, and he needed Sorry, to navigate on. that boundary uh, in order to bring the entire movement with him into peace as well. It's, uh, it, Absolutely. It was that balancing act for him that was able to give him credibility within the movement when he was uh, putting forward the potential uh, political solutions oh and absolutely and that brings us brings out then another um troubling element in this whole story which is that you sometimes have to swallow rather uncomfortable uncomfortable things to stop terrorism and again mcginnis is i think a very good example of that that uh i, I think towards the end of his life he played a very major role in reducing violence and as you rightly say he could only do that because he'd been heavily involved in it before then and therefore had the credibility to do that um that's uncomfortable it's some of the compromises that have to be made isn't it yeah yeah it is it's some as you say sometimes they're tough to swallow but sometimes they have to be done within the article you talk about you and john talk about three critical uh, process variables you talk about setting events personal factors and social political mm. organizational context i would like to focus on setting events and um, for the moment um within this you uh, th this is what happens uh, prior to um, to increased involvement and involvement in terrorist acts, what exactly uh, were you and John talking about in relation to to setting events for our listeners? Just uh, if you could describe that. Well, I think yeah, I I, I mean to under, that was very much shaped within an Irish context. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. It, I I don't know whether it would necessarily. I think the ideas would apply. I don't know whether the specifics would equally apply now in, the, in terms of the jihadi context, for example. But in the Irish context, there were clearly things that led some people towards increased engagement, not necessarily with political violence, but with political dissent. Um, so th there was a, you know, not, not the very least is Irish history that sort of draws people down particular kinds of paths. Um, family draws people down particular kinds of paths. But one striking thing that always seemed important to us was accident draws down particular paths. Um, how else do you, how do you explain the fact that, and we'll uh, use Northern Ireland as an example, but I think it probably applies elsewhere, but use that as, as we're talking about that paper, that was largely premised on the Irish context. In that context, most people had, um, or many, many working class 
young people uh, suffered uh, discrimination of some kind or another. Many were socially disadvantaged, jobs weren't always easy. Um, many people had families that were um, had, pre had history of involvement in either the Civil War or in uh, republicanism in some way. Um, you know, that if you like, all the things that we sort of characteristic characterize as being the things that lead you into terrorism, pretty much what many people experience, that only a few developed into terrorists, only a few became involved. And I, I've always felt that one of the one of the sort of most significant elements in all of this story is accident. You just happen to have a bad experience with somebody. You just happen to have a friend for whom something happened, or you just happen to be drinking in the right kind of or the wrong kind of pub at the time, and something else happens. You know, they they it seems to me those sort of random events, the the the, the way the world works out are often as influential in determining the choices we make in terms of terrorism as some of the grand things that it talked about. But, you know, pause for a minute. Reflect on your own life. Reflect on why you've ended up where you are now. Reflect on why you've made the job choices you've made. My bet is that for most people listening to this, if anybody is, um, Chance will have been an important element in it. You might have aspired to all sorts of things, but what actually opened the door was just chance events, the lucky congruence of events. Why is terrorism any different from the way our lives unfold in a normal world? So chance, it seems to me, is one of the most important setting events in the whole business. And that chance is difficult to manage, but... You know, maybe we could think about this in terms of rational offending, about how we rearrange the environment in which people operate so that such such malevolent chance events have a lower probability of occurrence, perhaps. Yeah, and it's like what you're when you're discussing that there, it just brings me back to the very beginning of this interview when I asked you, well, how did you get involved in this area of research? And you said a series of accidents. It's it's the same. It's chance. Oh, it's well, accident. So, yeah. Well, I think for most of you, most of the many things in I, I've always admired people who, you know, you've, you've interviewed people for jobs and they've, they've given you this long story about they've got this plan laid out and they're going to do this, that and the other. And I've always admired such people. And generally speaking, it doesn't work because life doesn't work that way. And I'm sure for some people, perhaps it does, but I've never seen it work out quite that way at all because things intervene. You know, you get ill or something happens or I don't know, whatever happens. Chance does determine what we do an awful lot. So we need to mitigate against um, these sort of malevolent random events. And uh, that, I think, brings you back then to notions about reasoning offender and rational choice and situational crime control and so on. It's not, um, it, it's not changing ideology, it's changing the environment in which behaviors, in this case, malevolent behaviors might occur. That's perhaps the most productive way of approaching it. Uh, and this is where I see the 
the growing influence in the past few years, especially of people with the criminology and crime science background can have on our understanding of, of terrorism and our understanding of the prevention of, of terrorism as well. I think this also uh, leads you into notions about evolution. Um, I think this leads you into thinking about um, in an evolutionary context, which doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, it might mean millennial, you know, changes that happen over millennia, but it might mean uh, much shorter time scale changes as well. And I, I think what, what, what I found really interesting about the, some of the evolutionary thinking is that it, it sort of chimes with all the things we've been talking about. It expresses um, in another context a similar kind of set of ideas, and I, I latterly, um, as you know, I've become very interested in uh, evolutionary thinking and how we might try and understand terrorism from that perspective. Uh, it seems to me that these are all part and parcel of the same things. And mm -hmm. um, what was it um, about evolutionary psychology? And I know that you have been involved in um, edit a collection on evolutionary psychology in a growing group of uh, individuals looking at the role that evolutionary psychology can play um, in our understanding of terrorism. Wh what was it that, that, that really made you think, actually, this, is, this has, has something uh, to bring to the, to the party, this is something that can help us understand oh. this more? I, well, in, in terms of my thinking, I think ideas about affordance mm -hmm. um, really made me think much more about evolutionary ideas. I think the idea of affordance seems to me to be enormously important um, in all sorts of ways, but it's not an idea that we are that familiar with in thinking about terrorism. The, I, I, it, it really relates to where we started off, doesn't it? It, it relates to notions about how environments affect people. Uh, because it does seem to me that there are some qualities of the environment that make some behaviours more likely to happen than others. And that's, in one way, what we mean by affordance. Mm -hmm. um, they are may well be acquired, but it does seem that some of these are inherently part of us, or, or perhaps expressed in a different way, inherently part of the way that we interact with the environment. It's not quite the same thing, is it? It's mm. not quite the same as saying that's part of us. But they seem to be inherently part of the way in which we navigate our way through this complex environment. So I think it's, it's uh, because pr prior to the evolutionary psychology collection, there was one on affordance. Um, and, it, and it's really that that made me think much more about ideas about evolution. Um, and how, how do we understand these um, built-in qualities to our behavior as opposed to the learned qualities? If you just, again, go back to the very beginning of all this, of this conversation, Skinner is often taken as being the man who talked about learning as being the sole determinant of why we do things. Um, in fact, he had a much more subtle view about life than that. And I think um, that might be something that 
lay to people who drew on Skinner's ideas rather put to one side the idea that the environment itself has certain qualities that lead you down certain kinds of paths make some things more likely to happen than others I, I um, intuitively the feel if you, I can't express this in a better way I think that needs working out more in terms of how we think about political violence um, and I think it's a very fruitful area to explore further Definitely, definitely. And it's even though it's not one of the the pieces that you've selected for discussion here, I, I would hugely encourage any of our listeners to go and pick up that book on terrorism and affordance uh, and obviously all of your all of your writings. But I think that 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 affordance book is it's one of the most innovative and thought provoking books on, on terrorism over the past few years. And um I think it, it does bring a new way of thinking about these uh, these challenges that we face. One of the things, Max, that I'm... Particularly effective, <laughs> but um, they, did, they did take a chance on that. And I, I've no idea whether anybody's ever bought it or read it, but uh, it was great. It, 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 its origins lay in a seminar that we ran, and um, it was fun to do. And I think it, it has, there is embedded in it material that, that needs working out further. Uh, and I haven't done that. I mean, I'm well aware that it's yet, yet another good idea that needs somebody else to follow through <laughs> on because I haven't and probably won't now. But uh, I think there's something there that does merit looking, looking at it in more detail. Uh, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. It's... Um... A lot of what's written in terrorism studies at the moment, it's the same stuff over and over again, whereas this really did uh, add something new and get, get the, it does get the reader uh, thinking a bit about, uh, about the, the topics being raised. One of the things, though, I'd like to... Well, f- go on, go on. No, no I was just going to... Well, I was just going to pick up on that theme. Um, I, I, um, it shows how tuned into the world I am. Just before 9-11, um, I... Did, pretty much stopped being involved in terrorism research because there was no interest in it mm. and there was no money in it particularly to sustain things so I, I, my attention went elsewhere for a little bit uh, and then I went back to St Andrew, I went to St Andrews and went back to terrorism research six years later or so um, one of the things that really struck me um, coming back to the area after a uh, I had continued to read and so on, but not been involved in terrorism research anyway for six years, was how little it had changed. Okay. Now, you might imagine that after 9-11 and the enormous amounts of money that were poured into terrorism research, we would have had all sorts of interesting and challenging new insights and new stuff. And I was really surprised to find that actually the kind of issues that we were thinking about pre 2000, uh, pre, pre 9-11 and pre that, that sort of era were actually the same as the ones we were talking about in 2006 when I became back involved in it again. And I, I always thought, well, that, now that's really, that's a, not a very healthy thing to say about an academic or an intellectual area. It should have advanced and I'm not sure it has. Yeah, uh, it's... It's something again that has has come up in other in other interviews. I I spoke to to one researcher who was saying that you think you've got a new idea and then you read Martha Crenshaw's work or someone else's work and you realise oh that idea was around years or decades ago even and that yeah there but 
hopefully things are starting to change now with some new ideas and with some new perspectives being taken on things. One of the things I'd like to, to ask you about, Max, actually, just um, briefly, is that in the introduction I mentioned that, and you've, you've uh, mentioned there that you don't just focus on terrorism research, but you you have focused um, on issues surrounding child grooming, child protection, etc. And in your um, in your article with John, uh, conceptual framework, uh, you briefly draw a comparison to child grooming um, and that how our understanding of child grooming might help us in relation to our understanding of recruitment of people uh, into terrorism. Could you uh, expand on that a bit more? What exactly can we learn from uh, from this this area of research and apply to terrorism studies? First of all, the, the kind of interests I had were to do with the internet and to do with people's activities online. The reasons why people are involved in sexual exploitation of children online are different from the reasons why people are engaged in talking about ideology or political violence, whatever, clearly. I mean, they make that point very clearly. I'm not saying in any way, I wouldn't want to in any way draw parallels between the kinds of reasons why people end up there. But the processes that people are exposed to once they're engaged with the internet seems to me to be probably common across all areas. Uh, and that's not about, that's about the nature of the internet. It also, interestingly, I think, brings us back to ideas about affordance. Because it's qualities of the internet that lead to certain kinds of things happening, or make more likely certain kinds of things happening. Um, and that's why I think there are parallels to, to draw. So I'm not, not in any way suggesting that um, sexual, sexual interest in children, for example, in somehow or other relates in any way to terrorist activities. Of course it doesn't. But because you're in, it's the nature of the internet and the kinds of processes that the internet operates by and how we interact with it, it, that seems to me to be the area of commonality. When I look at um, the level, I mean, there's an enormous, sorry, there's an enormous amount of work done on trying to understand the exploitation of children through the internet, a huge amount of work, and it's very sophisticated, and the, there's some really interesting and um, very challenging and complex ideas worked out. Contrast that with the way that we look at and the way that we've analyzed terrorist activity on the internet, and there is a striking difference. It's not sophisticated. It doesn't have the sort of nuanced empirical feel that the child exploitation literature has. So I think, I think it's about the notion of the internet as a process and the way that our engagement with it shapes our activities and how it draws us into certain kinds of things as opposed to others. Yeah. So it's not it's not about parallels between the states, as it were, for want of a better way of putting it, but it's about the processes that impinge on us when we engage with the internet. Yeah. No, it's a it's a it's a really worthwhile um, discussion to have while clearly showing the 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 differences there but drawing on what lessons we can learn as well but the the final article that you picked um to highlight here was your publication in 2010 in aggression and violent behavior posing the simple question or the on the face of it a simple question is terrorism a group phenomenon what was uh for the listeners could you uh, 
give a background into this article and why you felt that this was an important question to ask? Um, I'm not sure I thought at the time it was an important right. question. I was asked it. <laughs> so I, I, they asked me to write it. Um, so, so I did. And uh, as, I, as I wrote it, I began to feel... Um, I think it, it became a way of um, uh, expressing the frustration I feel at times with the over uh, over emphasis on social context in terrorism. Um, it, I think the uh, the disciplines that contribute to our understanding of terrorism tend, in the main, to be socially dominated. Sociology, anthropology, political science, especially, tend to be dominated by. Um, if you like, big stories, stories about social movements, stories about big things like ideology. And uh, it, it, it seems to me that none of that, oh, sorry, all of that, if you re return to ideas from Peters and so forth, all, all of that, of course, is one kind of entirely legitimate and very sensible way of thinking about terrorism. But there's also another set of issues which are, much, which are to do with how the individual interacts with things about things like chance, about why why someone does what they do. Um, and I wanted to, as it were, redress the balance and try and say that, well, at the very least, it's a more complicated story than simply looking at social structures or simply looking at uh, political environment or, you know, whatever else it is, that there is a, if you like, a psychological context to this that needs to be acknowledged. And that that psychological context is equally important to some of these larger, grander uh, kinds of explanations. And within this article, you um, highlight the role that communities of practice can help us to, how that can help us to better understand how membership of communities shape and focus behaviour. And, and this was this notion, this application of communities of practice. Uh, has, appears in some of your other writings as well. What, uh, what is it about uh, communities of practice that, that you feel uh, can add to, to this understanding? Um, well, if people aren't familiar with it, communities of practice are, are kinds of co a form of collective learning by doing. Mm -hmm. um, it, they, they, people often make reference to a model of a community of practice is an apprenticeship model. Um, you know, you, you learn with somebody, you learn by doing, uh, you learn by observing, you're part of this engagement with um, either with other people or with a, this, you know, skilled craftsman or whatever it is, and you learn by doing. And um, I've always thought that was a very important way of thinking about how we acquire those knowledge and behavior and it also fits in very well with notions about affordance because i think an integral part of thinking about how communities of practice work is to think about the notions of affordance and the way that affordance has engaged in that in that kind of learning environment um funny you know, it's odd that you should draw attention to that because um the series of 
uh, events that led to the evolutionary psychology book and the affordance book, there should also have been one on communities of practice. Um, and we, we never did it in the end. I don't know why, we just didn't. Um, but it, it seems to me that it's all part of that same story. And I, I, I make sense of communities of practice largely in terms of ways in which affordances might, might be uh, expressed. But either way, it's about learning, learning by experience. It's not formal learning uh, in the sense that you, know, you sit in a classroom and learn. Now, I think that, that works quite well for thinking about how terrorists acquire knowledge and acquire behavior. Um, so again, it's, it, it's relating again to ideas about motivation, isn't it? And about how we might understand why people do things. A lot of, a lot of the challenging notions, I, I think, re that remain challenging are to do with these why questions. And these are just different ways of answering why questions and how. Yeah, no, it's it. it I it again. Uh, once again, it does, it does really add to it. it adds to that understanding, and it's. Uh, it would have been fascinating to see how that that collection on communities of practice would have would have turned out. It's something that hopefully someday we'll see we'll see the light of day within the within the article. You focus primarily on um, two different um, two different. Uh, attacks. Uh, one uh, relation to the book, the publication or the proposed publication of the book, The Jewel of Medina, and another in relation to the murder of um, Garda Jerry McCabe in Limerick in 1996. Um, why was it that it was those two cases that you chose to, to help uh, delve through um, an explanation surrounding this question of terrorism and whether terrorism is a group phenomenon and what do you feel we can learn from these? Well, I think I think the murder of Garda McCabe is interesting because of the the way in which different stories, different accounts of it emerged as times changed. I mean, the the, um, the provisional movements uh, accounting for the GPO, the um, theft of the money and so on uh, around uh, that happened around the, when McCabe was killed, I think illustrates very nicely the cynical way in which um, motivations, if you like, can be used by political groups in different ways at different times to suit different purposes. Uh, and the, the story behind McCabe, is, as you will know, is quite complicated, isn't it? Um, uh, and it, you know, at one level it was a, a robbery that went wrong, at another level it was a repaying of old debts. Um, probably the latter is, is the accurate account. Um, the attempt then to draw the people who were convicted of McCabe's death into the amnesties around the peace deal and so on, again, kind of illustrates the um, Polite word would be complexity of the the ways of, of of the way that these things work out. So I think to my I, I, in my mind it it, it illustrates how um, there isn't a truth in any of these things that there are a variety of different truths, and it never does to take things at face value. Um, the Jewel of Medina one was. Interesting. I, I wasn't involved in in that case, but I saw the materials around it. Um, 
And I think that 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 was uh, an interesting. Um, and the, the man who was most involved in that was a very marginal character, a very marginal figure in many ways, and he was on the periphery of things. He got involved in something. He was, he was also quite inept in the way that he did things. Um, and it, it seemed to me that that again illustrated the complexity of trying to understand what at first sight is, you know, a very clear ideal, you know, in 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 uh, radical Islamic terms, there is a logic behind it, behind that attack. But then when you begin to explore the individual involved and you look at the way in which it worked out and so forth, it's an awful lot more complicated than a straightforward political story. Uh, and if you like, it illustrates... Um, Peter's point that there are different ways of looking at the same events that might indeed lead you to quite contradictory accounts of it, um, but they're all true depending on where you come from, or they're all, they're all meaningful, anyway, truth might not be the right word. Beheshti uh, in this case um, always struck me as an extremely interesting man because when you look at the materials that he had on his computer when it was seized, when he was arrested, you find all sorts of interesting things, not least of which is material in Arabic. But Beheshti didn't speak Arabic, but he had a lot of, he had a lot of, he had radical Islamic uh, material, which he clearly collected. Um, and why, there's an interesting question to us there, why did, why did this man who had no Arabic collect uh, Arabic ideological material. Well, one way of thinking about it is that it was a kind of token. I mean, he couldn't understand it, but it was the possession of it that mattered rather than the content of it that mattered. And I think that's an interesting thing to say about the motivation behind that individual. Mm. So I guess they're, they're the lessons I would try to draw from it. Looking back on it now, looking back at, from a, at it from a distance, they're the lessons I'd try to learn. Yeah, and it's it's always nice to see a paper that highlights, especially in relation to the Jula Medina case, a, a case that you wouldn't really get much focus on. Um, oftentimes the focus is on these high-profile attacks, these high-profile events, as you discuss within the piece. Um, he wasn't even charged uh, with, um, with terrorism offences. It was in relation to arson that he was... That he was no, and he was... Really badly organised attack. I mean, it, and it was and it was monitored throughout. Mm -hmm. So I mean, he wasn't. There was, there was highly unlikely that there was going to be any kind of uh, big big outcome from it because he was being monitored throughout the whole of it. Um, and as I said, he was a fairly inadequate character, very odd, very peculiar, um, a very peculiar individual, I, I think. Um, but. It's easy to, to take that in isolation and say, look, here's an example of, you know, a radical Islamic example, an example of radical exam, uh, radical Islamic political violence. But when you look at it in more detail, it turns out to be a lot more complex than that. Um, and arguably, a number of the elements were nothing to do with radical Islam, but all to do with the nature of that individual and the way he tried to make sense of his world and to do with things like status and belonging and so on.
Yeah, and you, you sum up quite well towards the end of the article where you say group factors clearly relate to involvement, but little, but have little to say about pre- precise events. And that's where, uh, throughout all the three pieces that you've put forward, um, that, that's one of the key messages, the take-home messages for, from this. And in the aftermath of I, that statement, I'll oh, go on. Yeah. No, I think that's right, John. I think you, the, it, it's, it's Cornish and Clark's distinction again, isn't it, between mm. um, big stories and little stories. And, and uh, being a criminal, being a terrorist, um, is a label that we might use. Um, we struggle to give it a legal meaning. Um, but when you look at what people actually do in the particular context of it, you find it's not always to do with these great political things, and it might be to do with a lot of very small things. And I, I think that was the point I was trying to make in that paper. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's coming back to this issue of some of those small things may be chance, may be accident, um, and we, we need to, to acknowledge the role that these can play as well. So... I've realized that we're coming to the end of the podcast here. Um, we've talked about it throughout this discussion, but what do you feel is the current uh, state of terrorism research and where do you think it needs to go forward from, from here? As I said, we have this theme has arisen throughout our discussion, but what would be your final summation, your final remarks on that? I, I think, um, I felt in, in, towards the end of my time in St. Andrews that um, we, we, we talk about um, interdisciplinary work, but, but the reality is that we don't see it in terrorism studies. Um, we, we talk about uh, or at least we acknowledge that you know there are things like multiple causes and that there are different ways of thinking about things and so on. But in practice, it seems to me that we we are really still very discipline bounded. I am. I'm a psychologist, and you know the the pieces that I've identified for you in many ways are, um, if not psychological pieces, are clearly strongly influenced by psychology. I think we really need to take seriously this idea of interdisciplinary work. Uh, And I think we need to make much more effort for the different disciplines involved to work together. And I I think that the way you do that is through some kind of institutional involvement, um, where where you bring together um, disciplines to address topics, research topics or whatever. I also think, however, that there's another element to this, which um, we did try to do in St. Andrews, and I don't think we we were very effective at it, uh, which is that I think we also have to engage with a practitioner. Um, I don't think that uh, the study of terrorism is uh, properly conducted as an academic enterprise. It, it, it requires a practitioner engagement. It requires, and by practitioner, I don't mean politician. I mean that, you know, the people, the police, the security services or whatever, the other agencies that are involved in, uh, in, in, in managing terrorism. 
Um, I think that we need really to, I think we need an investment in a collective uh, centre, an institutional structure, or some some similar thing that um, would help to break down the professional and discipline boundaries, which seems to me to be one of the reasons why we aren't progressing, perhaps in the, the way that we should. And to that extent, I agree with Sageman. And Sageman's um, criticisms of terrorism research. Some of them were very much about, um, you know, profession, professionals know everything, but they don't understand it, and academics understand everything, but they don't know it. And we need to bridge that kind of gap. Don't, and so that that will be my view about the future for things that we need to. In, there needs to be a very clear investment in something like that. Yeah, and there needs to be a willingness from both sides as well, from the academics as well as the practitioners, to be involved in such a discussion. And that's difficult. Uh, I mean, it, I'm much more comfortable. Well, I don't know. I'm probably too old now to be comfortable in talking to psychologists. Which psychology has changed now and it's moved on. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm comfortable in my roots, obviously, and I don't particularly... Uh, I'd, I'd like to think that I've explored political science. I'd like to think that I've read reasonably widely. I think I've worked with political scientists. Um, I'd like to feel that there's an openness, uh, you know, to, to 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 learning from other disciplines, but that isn't the characteristic that I see of the literature in terrorism studies. It still seems to be very much bounded by uh, discipline uh, requirements. One of the added problems, as well, and this is to do with the structure of academic life, I think, but I, I don't know that. Um, people being academically rewarded greatly by being involved in research on terrorism. Uh, I don't see that many people um, benefiting hugely in terms of academic careers, for example, by uh, heavy involvement in terrorism. I do see lots of people dropping into terrorism, and this is Andrew Silt's point, isn't it, which mm -hmm. I think remains, people drop into terrorism research for the money, because there's money there, and then they get out of it and do something else more interesting or more profitable in terms of their careers. Um, so maybe there's something about academic career structures. Um, I, I think that might be less of an issue from the professional end of it. I think security, some security professionals certainly see the value of engagement in academic activities. I don't know how you would do that. I, I, had I been longer in St Andrews, perhaps that's there might have been a, a, a more progress in that than I felt we made. Um, but I would see that as being a very a good aspiration to try and break down the discipline boundaries. I, I, I give you. A little reflection. I, I look at the material that comes into terrorism and political violence. I edit it, and mm -hmm. I see pretty well all the material that comes in. Very little is what you would describe as being interdisciplinary. An awful lot of it has a very clear discipline base, and in terms of that journal, it's political science. And because of that, it misses things, and it's not as rich, I think, as it should be. 
So that will be my view on 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 a way a way forward. I also have a I always felt for well or not always but for a long time I felt that we actually know a great deal about terrorism. Um, we don't always we're not always able to access it because quite a lot of the information about terrorism is kept secret and is not made public and is not shared. Some sometimes there are good reasons for that. Sometimes there aren't good reasons for that. Um, so a greater openness about sharing, perhaps, would be a part of this agenda of breaking down barriers. Yeah, and I, I feel that uh, it's a it's a nice point to to conclude today's podcast in that a greater openness we will be able to to achieve a lot more, and we'll be able to gain a greater understanding. Um, in relation to um, to to our understanding of terrorism and all forms of political violence, and that by crossing over disciplinary boundaries as well, we will uh, we we can uh, as well take strides in that regard. Max, thank you so much for ta- for spending all this time on today's podcast. It's been a a really fascinating discussion and uh, one that I'm sure we could uh, we could extend for hours and hours, but. I think we'll leave it there for today. I'd like to to thank uh, Professor Max Taylor for being my guest today. I'd like to thank Jamie Murray for editing today's podcast. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for listening. As always, if you want to uh, see or read any of the pieces that were referred to in today's podcast, they're all on our website. That's uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. Be sure to tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror at our Twitter handle at T-E-R-C-U-E-L. And uh, be sure to check back in for all of our future podcasts. Uh, So thank you and goodbye. Hope that you enjoyed today's chat, Max. If you want to find out more about the psychology of terrorism, be sure to tune into next week's episode where I'll be talking to Dr. Emily Corner of University College London about her most recent research and the research that has influenced her on the psychology of terrorism and specifically the psychology of lone actor terrorists.